Today's text will be good for you. It will be hard for you, but good for you. This text is one of those texts that make you question, is God who I really thought he was? Honestly, for some of you, this passage will be an all-out assault on your view of God. This text will either drive you further into your pursuit of God or simply make you drop your pursuit of God. There have been moments in my Christian life when I discovered something about God from his word and it rocked me. It really shattered me. I had what I thought was a proper view of God, but discovered that it was a cultural view of God, uninformed by the scriptures. What do you do when you discover uncomfortable truths about God? What do you do when you look at the actions of God, but deep down you don't want to believe that God would act in that way? What do you do when the Bible's uncomfortable stories make you uncomfortable with God? Well, there are three options. Option one, you will not allow yourself to be uncomfortable. You will ignore the uncomfortable teaching. You will refuse to give it any deep thought. You will only and always accept a view of God that makes you comfortable. Option one. Option two, you will allow your uncomfortableness to anger you. You will encounter today's text and become angry. Angry at the preacher who preaches it. Angry at the people who accept it. But deep down, angry at God who wrote it. Where does that anger come from? That teaching assaulted your view of God. Option three, you will allow the uncomfortable story to break you and remold your view of God into a biblical one. As a pastor, I can't count the times broken people have met with me and asked, can this be true about God? Is this how he operates? Is this how he laid out his plan? Mostly, I just listen. I don't argue. They don't want to argue. They want to weep. They want to mourn. They want to unlearn what they have learned. One man came to me after he discovered some uncomfortable truth about God and he said, I don't want this to be true and I don't want you to convince me of it. The very fact that you will struggle with today's text is a good thing. A really good thing. This is what being in an expositional church will do to you. It's constantly breaking your view of God and remolding it into a scriptural one. It's uncomfortable because it does not ignore the uncomfortable stories. I am not depending on my homiletical skills to make this text acceptable to you. I am not resting in my speaking abilities to make your soul cling to this text like a life raft. My dependence is completely on the Holy Spirit to teach you how to take this uncomfortable story 
and worship your way through it. Just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Let us begin to behold the beauty of our God from this text. Here's a little sneak peek at what you will behold. One, God is commanding men, women, and children to be killed. Nameless people don't seem to have the same effect on us, so let me personalize it. God is commanding a soldier to bust into the home and kill Tom, Mandy, and little Susie. And do that in every home, and every subdivision, until everyone in that geographical region is dead. That's one. Two, God ripping the crown away from King Saul because he would not completely follow those orders. Also, it seems God planned Saul's fall from the beginning that he was doomed from the start. That God never really gave Saul a real chance to succeed. He was always destined to fail. Is this the dark side of God's dealing with mankind? Three, God, in our text, repenting. English word, regretting. Hebrew word, God, repenting. How does a God who supposedly has no sin repent? What does this reveal about our God? All of that in today's text. What an easy Sunday. You think half of our people are gone today because it's Thanksgiving weekend? No. It's because we're in 1 Samuel 15. Let's begin in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. We have here gray-haired Samuel. The priest of God's people. In the Old Testament, God spoke audibly to his priests and his prophets to communicate to his people. Here, wrinkly old Samuel, bent over, walking with a cane, approaches prime of his life, King Saul. Saul, head and shoulders above every other man. I can't imagine how this towering figure engulfed hunchback Samuel. Samuel probably came up to his belly button. Samuel looks up and he says, You are king because God made you temporary king. Listen, he orders Saul. This word listen is used 26 other times to introduce the authoritative message from God. In the Hebrew, the emphasis of this sentence is on the word me. Me has the Lord sent. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep. Camel and donkey. Now, who were the Amalekites? The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, the unbelieving brother of Jacob, 
They were constant enemies of Israel. They were nomadic raiders inhabiting the desert. They were desert dwellers. They were guilty of some of the most heinous acts of atrocity you have ever read about. The brutal sexual things they did to their enemies is stuff that will make you throw up. They practiced genocide. They also worshipped false gods by sacrificing their own children. They were known for cowardly tactics against unsuspecting nations. In fact, God takes Samuel down memory lane in verse 2. He says, they were the first to oppose Israel after the exodus. They came out of Egypt. Israel came out of Egypt and, and the Amalekites ambushed them from behind. It was a dirty attack. They picked off the weak, the sick, the elderly. They brutally murdered the stragglers. Israel was alone and defenseless in the wilderness and the Amalekites pillaged them, ruthlessly abusing the captive women. And I, and I want to point, point out that this was, not an this was an ancient injustice, not a recent one. Saul wasn't alive when these events took place. God, through Samuel, gives Saul instructions. First, kill all the Amalekites. The verb, totally destroy, is used seven times in the chapter. It's a severe command. A curse of utter destruction. <laughs> Loved ones, there is no way to soften the impact of this apart from ripping this chapter out of your Bible. Any attempts to minimize this text or sanitize it crumbles before the truth of Scripture. This is a terrible event, a horrible command, a lamentable ending. No exceptions. Everyone must die. Every male Amalekite, every female Amalekite, every senior citizen Amalekite, that's right, go into the old folks' home and kill them all. Every child Amalekite in elementary school, every infant Amalekite in their mother's arms, kill every living, breathing thing. And before you leave, kill the family dog and all the farm animals too. First, kill the Amalekites. Secondly, don't leave that massacre with any of their possessions. God says, I will not allow you to attack them for the same reasons they attack other nations. They do it to enrich themselves. To take slaves, to pillage, to rape, to steal. You may not profit one cent from this military venture. All the spoils of war belong to the Lord. Therefore, it is holy. People and property are put under a ban. No one may take possession of them. Now what do we do with this? I want us to look at the historical fact, then the timeless truth, then the modern application. First, the historical fact. By commanding the destruction of the Amalekites, God was avenging a war crime. God sent Saul and his army to avenge a previous war crime. God even predicted this day would come. He said way back in Deuteronomy 25, years and years ago, he said, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off at your rear all who lagged behind you and he did not fear God? 
Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God has given you, when that has happened, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Because God created the nations, he has the moral right to remove those nations from existence. But, but Kyle, the Amalekites' attack on Israel was 300 years previous. None of these current Amalekites did those actions mentioned in Deuteronomy 25. That's true. But the modern Amalekites carried on the legacy of violence. A legacy of attacking Israel. This was a war of self-defense as it was anything. They kept attacking and kept attacking and kept attacking. The nation of Israel became the agent of God to bring the wickedness against Israel and the other nations to a halt. What about children and infants? Tom Schreiner says a culture can become so corrupt that total annihilation is warranted. You need to hear me. This is not ethnic cleansing. This has nothing to do with the ethnicity of the Amalekites. This is ethical cleansing, not ethnic cleansing. This is an elimination of false worship. Yeah, but Kyle, it's still, it's still dirty. My claim is that scripture is true, not sanitized. It's God-breathed, not politically correct. If you rely more on sentiment than spiritual truth, you will struggle with this text. Well, I just, I just don't like how it makes me feel. It doesn't matter how it makes you feel. If you only believe the parts of the Bible that you feel comfortable, you actually don't believe the Bible at all. I actually see mercy here. Is not Yahweh slow to anger and giving them 300 years to repent? That's the historical fact. Now the timeless truth. How do we move it over? By commanding the destruction of the Amalekites... God was protecting your salvation. This was a battlefield of divine retribution. If Israel did not eliminate them, they would have eliminated Israel, killing all of them. Let's just zoom out for a moment. This is bigger than a fight between two nations. This was God protecting his chosen nation, his elect nation. He protected them for a purpose. What was the purpose? He was going to send a Messiah through that nation. God was protecting your salvation by eliminating the Amalekites. This was God determining that nothing would keep Jesus from being born of Israel and go to a cross to save his people. You've seen, you've seen those beware of dog signs that hang on trees outside of people's property. Well, Israel had a beware of Yahweh sign hanging on them until Jesus was born. He protected them because he planned for the Genesis 3.15 baby to come through them. The historical fact, the timeless truth, the modern application. 
I want to bring this home to us. I want to be clear. We are not called as Christians to engage in a holy war. Now, I don't even like the term holy war. A lot of scholars use it, and I use it at times to illustrate certain Old Testament battles where God stepped onto the battlefield and came through for his people. They were holy wars in the sense that God initiated the conflict and he was the warrior who ensured its success. I want to recommend a book to you. It's entitled Holy War in the Bible. Uh, It it was edited and co-written by one of my profs in seminary. He argues that the term holy war is not a good one to use. That phrase is not used in the Old Testament. He argues that it's better to use the phrase divine warfare to describe this event and other events like it in the Bible. He really should retitle his own book. (laughs) These events in the Old Testament are limited and non-repeatable. God is not commanding you to go out and destroy Amalekites or bomb abortion clinics. Or be a Bonhoeffer and try to kill the president. This text is not calling you to physical militaristic action. This is not the church's responsibility. You ask me, Kyle, well, what do you think about someone who says, God spoke to me that I should go kill these evil non-Christians? What do you think about them? Well, I think they're sickos. They're hearing a voice. But it is not the voice of God. We are not called as Christians to engage in a holy war. That's Islam, not Christianity. The battles that we are fighting are spiritual battles. The only war we do is spiritual warfare. No nation today, not America, not Iran, can ever claim the mantle of God's people engaged in a legitimate holy war. Now, we are three verses into 35. What do you say we pick up the pace? Verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telem, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. So picture this, 210,000 men with Saul. Verse 5. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed. Saul was fearful the Kenites would inadvertently get harmed in this battle. So he tells them to evacuate. Saul and his army land blast the Amalekites. Bodies laying everywhere. Dead men, dead women, dead children, dead dogs, dead sheep, dead cows. The streets are running with blood. Verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they did devote to destruction. After this event, God came to the old priest Samuel and he said, Samuel, Saul has not kept my commandment regarding the Amalekites. The verse says that Samuel, the old man, got angry. It was a righteous anger. 
And he stayed up all night long praying to the Lord. Samuel takes no pleasure in Saul's failure, nor the task that confronts him next. He will go to Saul with a rebuke from the Lord. Samuel heads out to wag his finger in the face of Saul. Along the way, he receives a bush telegraph. Saul set up a stone monument to honor himself. (laughs) Can you imagine? How egotistical. He wants to preserve his memory, to point at something and say, I'm bragging about this, to have bragging rights. This stone memorializes that I, King of Saul, King Saul of Israel, took Agag alive. Would you want to memorialize your sin? It's a 15-mile journey, a day's walk for the old prophet, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. (laughs) He's almost giddy, running out to meet the man of God. I did it. I did it. I performed all that the Lord commanded. The worst deception is self-deception. Saul has convinced himself he has obeyed the Lord. He is blind to his own sin. The next scene is comedic. Comedic. While he speaks, you hear in the background the bleeding of the sheep and the mooing of the cattle. Samuel begins asking a series of questions. Why do I hear animal sounds when all the animals should be dead? Saul was confronted with his sin, and I want you to see how he responds. First he deflects, then he justifies, finally he minimizes. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop Stop deflecting, stop justifying, stop minimizing your sin enough. I've had enough of your contorted reasoning and excuse making. Samuel emphasizes the word you in verses 17 and 18. You, the Lord chose. You led this mission. The Lord called you to obey his command. When you started out in this, you were nothing and you knew it. Now you're building monuments to yourself. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? It's difficult to see in the English, but in the Hebrew, God uses the word voice over and over and over again. I heard the voice of the sheep. I heard the voice of the cattle. Why did you not listen to the voice of God? We are let in on some new factors here. Apparently, the army pounced on the meat. They were not to enrich their bellies from this battle, but they ate meat from the farm animals. He uses the word pounce. That's an orgy of meat eating. Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. He's deflecting here. Watch him justify his sin next. Verse 21. But the people...
people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I didn't enrich myself. It was the people who enriched themselves. I couldn't control it. I couldn't stop it. That was a lie. He and the people broke the commandment. He had charge over the people. He has the greater sin here. He deflects, he justifies, now he minimizes. Well, we only saved the best of the flock, the best of the cattle, not to eat, but to sacrifice to the Lord. Even that was a lie. Samuel looks over and they have meat hanging out of their mouths. What about the T-bone steak on your plate there, Saul? Saul has basically become Hophni and Phinehas, a meat-loving hypocrite. Verse 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel says, no ceremony can make up for your rebellious attitude toward God. You think your empty rituals impress God? You're staging this lavish, lavish religious production as if that will make up for your disobedience. You're seeking to compensate for your sin by some religious activity. You have exterior conformity without a heart of obedience. Yeah, but look at all the fat rams I can give the Lord. Verse 23, Samuel says to Saul, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Last week... God rejected Saul's dynastic kingship. Jonathan, his son, would not reign after him. This week, God rejects Saul himself from being king. And this is wild because God chose Saul as king. He's rejecting the chosen. According to verse 23, disobedience equals divination. Samuel says to Saul, When you disobey the Lord, it is as disgusting to God as blatant witchcraft. Later in 1 Samuel, Saul will result to this very thing, witchcraft. It's not surprising. It was in his heart the whole time. Being selective in your obedience is akin to pagan idolatry. It's the same category. Not listening to God is not a simple failure or misunderstanding. It's fooling around with the occult. Let's look at the three things again. The historical fact, the timeless truth, and the modern application. First, the historical fact. Saul did not kill all the Amalekites and their animals. According to God, anything less than full, immediate obedience is disobedience. 
Partial obedience is still disobedience. 98% obedience is still disobedience. It's disobedience when you revise God's command. Read and then redefine sin. Read and then revise sin. Well, it just, it just makes sense not to waste all the good meat. We should honor the Lord with it. That's just good common sense. Common sense doesn't trump God's word. Are there any here who are neglecting a known duty? According to Samuel, you're practically a Satanist. The historical fact, now the timeless truth. We, like Saul, are experts in defending our sin. We are blame shifters. We blame the parents that raised us. We blame the, the neighborhoods we grew up in. We blame the friends that influenced us. Trying to blame shift backfires on Saul. He hears Samuel say, aren't you the king? I want you to hear, hear Saul saying this. They spared the best, but we destroyed the wet rest. See what he did there? Are you always twisting it to sound in your favor? To give yourself the benefit of the doubt? I, one of your pastors, one of your elders, I'm built to make excuses for my sin. And so are you. You say, my conscience is clear, therefore I am innocent. That means nothing. Saul had a clear conscience when he ran out all giddy to talk to Samuel. You are an expert at defending your own sin. That is why you must surround yourself with other believers who will give you gospel correction. You are not objective when you view your heart. Don't resist the rebuke. Humble yourself. Have you given anyone a hunting license? Permission to point out sin in your life if they see it. The historical fact, the timeless truth, the modern application. Do not attempt to cover up your sin with empty religious acts. Church, do not labor under the faulty notion that God accepts your religious activity when you have known sin in your life. You, like Saul, can couch your sin and your rebellion in the language of devotion, but God is not fooled. You can't cover your disobedience with a cloak of religiosity. Well, I, I know this job keeps me out of corporate worship, but look at all the money I can give to the church. God doesn't need your fat rams. Keep your master's commands. I know I look at pornography, but I'm always at church on Sunday. I know I'm, I'm hateful to all my employees, but I'm always serving at the church. You can excuse your disobedient thing over here because you are doing some obedient thing over there. 
I know I'm holding on to this bitterness toward my spouse or that person at church, but I still sing loud on Sundays. I know I'm disobedient over here. I don't pray in private. I don't read in private. But I bring food to people and I support needy children. God doesn't need your fat rams, your sacrifices. He wants your obedience. We are masters at covering our sin with external ceremonies. This isn't a Saul problem. This is a sinful heart problem. Just because you sacrifice your fat rams doesn't excuse your disobedience in another area. God can't be bought. He can't be fooled. You may have fooled yourself, but you didn't fool God. Don't justify your disobedience by what you can sacrifice in another area. I think it was Elizabeth Elliot who told the story of a child in the kitchen. The child's mother told her to clean the kitchen. She had been in there for quite a while. Later, the mother walked into the kitchen and the kitchen was still a mess. And the daughter said to the mom, the mom said, well, why, why is the kitchen still a mess? And the daughter responded, well, I didn't clean, but I'm in here singing to Jesus. I don't need you to sing. I need you to obey. And all the parents said, amen. There is no need to offer God praise if you're disobedient. Some of you that are non-Christians, you have this mentality as well. Well, I know I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I know I'm sleeping with my boyfriend. But I always make it to communion. You can't get away with flat-out disobedience by showing up to the Lord's table. Whether the readers are ancient or modern, Christians or non-Christians, this text warns us of the danger of religious formalism. You naturally drift toward externalism. Your star-studded Bible conferences, your church luncheons mean nothing if you're not obeying God's command. Your performance of worship doesn't impress the Almighty God. Not your high liturgy, not your robed pastors, not your choir singing, not your organist playing, not your full 60-piece orchestra, orchestra doing Beethoven and Bach. Or on the other end, not your Nashville-level band, not your, your lights and, and smoke machines and state-of-the-art buildings, not your multiple services, not your full buildings. God doesn't get fired up about us singing songs on Sunday when we live antithetical to the gospel throughout the week. Religion-centered. Religion-centered tries to pay God off. Gospel-centered trusts in the payment of Jesus alone. Church, you understand this. Samuel, as a priest, is not condemning the sacrificial system itself. It will stay in place until the New Testament. Once Jesus dies as the final sacrifice, the shadow is no longer needed. The reality is here. Jesus, the final sacrifice, will put an end to all the sacrificial system. Now, what doesn't change between then and now is the heart behind what we do. 
Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul admits that he feared the displeasure of people more than the displeasure of God. And that was a great insult to God. Saul's weakness, he had a weakness, he had a tendency to do this. Saul's weakness became Saul's wickedness. Verse 25. Now therefore, please pardon my sin. That sounds good, but it goes south here. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Uh, oh, absolve me of my sin. Take my hand and lead me to the altar so I can worship God. But Samuel refused. No, I can't come alongside you in this. You've rejected God's command. Now God has rejected you as king over Israel. For Samuel not to accompany Saul to the altar would be a massive humiliation for Saul. Politically, it was suicidal for Saul to have an open rift with the religious leader of Israel. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. This lovely, beautiful, majestic high priest robe was just ripped by Saul. Verse 28, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. What a dramatic symbol. Just as you tore my priestly robe, your kingly robe will be torn from you. And it will be given to someone better than. You may want to mark those two words in verse 28, better than. See, that used to describe Saul. Saul was better than, heads and shoulders above everyone else, without equal. Now someone better than him will take over. I wonder who that is. He must be a big fellow, a monster of a man. We're left wondering, who is the better than king? Now, an interesting little geographical note. You, you may find no interest in this, but I, I do. Um, this is probably something I should have cut. But It was in Gilgal that Saul received his kingship. In Gilgal, where his kingship was renewed. And now in Gilgal, where his kingship is rejected. The story of Saul's life all in one city. Verse 30, then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. <laughs> Not surprising. All he cares about is maintaining the support of the people. He cares more about keeping up appearances than reconciling with God. This is sad. God's word has simply not penetrated his heart and mind. He asked, do me this honor, king. Samuel finally agrees. And then we have this sweet little bedtime story to end the chapter. When they arrive, Samuel says, bring Agag to me. This is the king of the Amalekites. The soldiers bring King Agag out and the text says he comes cheerfully. He knows he's been spared from destruction and now he's about to be brought before the religious leader of the nation. Verse 33, then Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel, in his beautiful robe, hacked 
Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. The words before the Lord are used like this was a worship act. There's even a little Hebrew parallelism in the verse that I, I think is, is neat. If you just take Samuel's words, his, his sentence there, it begins like this. As your sword made women childless, your mother will be childless. And then it's supposed to go back in his sentence to the, the sword. We're, we're left wondering, where is the sword in his speech? It's not in his speech. It's in his hand. And he hacks him to death. Verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. Their relationship for all intents and purposes is finished. Their friendship is severed. Samuel grieved for Saul. A word actually used for lamenting for the dead. Saul was dead to Samuel. No more counsel from Samuel. No more word from the Lord. No more encouragement. Just unbearable silence. They each went back to their cities. These two cities are less than 10 miles apart. But they might as well be worlds apart. For the third and final time, let's look at the historical fact the timeless truth, and the modern application. The historical fact. Saul used the right words. Pardon my sin. But it wasn't genuine repentance. Augustine said, while the human ear heard the right words, the divine ear saw a difference in the heart. Saul had the habit of making excuses instead of confessing sin. On the surface, this looks like repentance, but it's not. And, and here's why. True repentance always has these two things. One, end of excuses. Two, a move toward God. We don't see any of those things in Saul's life. He doesn't show any true lasting remorse for sin. This is the tragedy of Saul. The kingdom torn. I thought about titling this sermon, the, the One Where the Crown Begins to Crumble. Before today in 1 Samuel, we've watched Saul's ascent to the throne and his success as king. We've developed quite an affection for this farm boy, now king. But the purpose of chapter 15 is to show his heart decay began to fully reveal itself. Saul is a bit of a mixed bag. There is some good, and there is some bad. He looks like a leader. He delivers Israel from enemies. He saves them from savagery and looting. But there is definite weaknesses and failings that appear. He had a strong beginning. But the middle and ending were bad. He's a fader, not a finisher. The story of his decline began last week but continues to rush like whitewater rapids from here on out. And many people wonder whether Saul was a genuine follower of God at all, if he was truly saved or not. One of the men in our church listened to a panel discussion where men like 
John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul attempted to answer this question, they all said, I don't know. And that's probably what I should say. But I'm not. There is no strong evidence that Saul was ever a genuine believer in the first place. In one place in our study of 1 Samuel, it says God gave him a new heart. But that was not regeneration language. That, was, that was, gave him a desire to be a king. He gave him a king's heart. Tom Schreiner says Saul was never a true follower of Yahweh. Not a Christian. Jim Hamilton says Saul was the seed of the serpent, not the seed of the woman. In other words, not a Christian. Ryan Kelly believes Saul was an example of apostasy. And I tend to lean in the direction of these three men. Saul speaks to Samuel and he says, You're God, not my God. Now, I am aware, I'm aware that how God deals with Saul in the scriptures leaves some of you a bit uncomfortable. It seems like Saul was doomed as king from the beginning. That it was always part of God's plan for Saul to fail and be replaced by David. It seems the old country boy was never really in favor with God. And one commentator presents the case so well, he says, David, who from the start seems to be in favor, committed appalling sins of which Saul was never guilty. Why therefore is Saul so harshly judged? David, after his wrongdoing, found forgiveness, yet Saul seemed to be doomed to fail right from the beginning. The idea of the dark fate hanging over Saul? Does Saul fail as a king because his own inner inadequacy as a human being? Or does this all amount to an opposing fate? The dark side of God's dealing with mankind. You could argue that David's sins were way greater than Saul's. But as Phillips points out, the difference between sinful Saul and sinful David is the same difference between sinful Apostle Judas and sinful Apostle Peter, who both betrayed the Lord Jesus on the night of his arrest. One has genuine repentance, and the other doesn't. Forgiveness does not lie in the weight of your sin, but in the genuineness of your repentance. We can't see Saul's heart, but we must accept God's assessment of Saul's heart. Why did God reject Saul? Verse 23. Because Saul rejected God. Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. That is a one-sentence summary of the first three kings of Israel. The historical fact, now the timeless truth. Christianity is not a religion for those who do not sin. Nor it is a religion for those who do not repent. Christianity is for those who come to Jesus and say, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. When you sin, you need repentance. Not to soothe your troubled conscience with good works. That's what Saul did. That's anti-gospel. Sincere repentance leads to a changed life. Not a sinless life, but a changed life. 
For those of you who are children, because I often get this question from children in our church. For those of you who are kids and wonder, I haven't seen a big change in my life. Have I repented? Look at it like this. Right now, at this moment, right now, are you banking your eternity on the empty tomb? Right now, are you believing that Jesus is who he said he was? Right now, are you repenting of your sin? The change you're looking for is your desire to repent. That is not natural. That was gifted to you. Dear church, and let me just say this about repentance. Do not dread repenting. View repentance as a gift, as a win. I am never happier than when I am repenting. Non-Christian, you need to repent of your sin and believe on Jesus. The historical fact, the timeless truth, now the modern application. The modern application is this. Sometimes the Bible stoops to use human categories to explain a God who is far beyond our categories. I didn't read two verses in our narrative, but I want to read them now. Verse 11, God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Verse 35b, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The English word is regret. The Hebrew word is repent. God repented that he had made Saul king. Now, those of us with a strong view of God's sovereignty don't like this. I repent. God doesn't. What's happening here? There are two repenting in our text. God and Saul. The first is paradoxical. The second is superficial. God is not repenting over his sin. He has no sin. In one sense, this is not repentance at all. The repentance which God does is not like the repentance which man does. That's why the translators of the ESV translate this word regret. Because in that word, there is a strong emotional element. God is using anthropomorphism. That's attributing human characteristics to himself. Or anthropopathism, which is attributing human feelings to God. One scholar said, when the Bible says that God repents, it means that he expresses a different attitude about something than he expressed before. Not because of any turn of events was unexpected, but because the turn of events makes a different attitude more fitting to express now than it would have been before. What is God doing? Sharnik says God is condescending to reveal himself in human terms so that his glory will not harm us, but rather heal and help us. Some people, maybe some of you, read this divine regret and end up believing open theism. Open theism. That God doesn't know human events until they happen. 
open theism. God is ignorant of the future. God can be caught off guard. John Sanders is a proponent. He wrote a book, The God Who Risks. And in it, he says, God is not following a blueprint and working with us. Gregory Boyd writes that God's regret proves that God was not sovereign over Saul's choices. He, he writes, and I quote, Common sense tells us that we can only regret a decision we made if the decision resulted in an outcome other than what we expected. That's open theism. I do not hold to that because I don't think the Bible holds to that. A brief word here about divine repentance. Um, John Piper said, God repented in the way one experiences repentance when he is all wise and foreknows the entire future perfectly. The experience is real, but it's not like finite man experiences it. I'm telling you, God ordained all things in this chapter, including his repentance. Just because God knows in advance how some events will occur does not prevent him from experiencing appropriate emotions and expressing appropriate reactions. Ultimately, God cannot be reduced into neat little categories and then placed on the shelf of your mind. He is not a topic to be mastered. He is a creator to be worshipped. Now I want to show you one more verse that I failed to read in our narrative. <laughs> it's talking about God not reversing his decision to take the crown away from Saul. It's in verse 29. And also the glory of Israel, that's God. God will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, the author of 1 Samuel is clearly aware of this seeming contradiction. He wrote it, and he wrote it purposefully. God regrets. God does not regret. God repents. Let me just leave you with this. God does not repent. It's puzzling already to say God repents. It's doubly puzzling to add, oh, and he does not repent. Here's what that sentence means in, in context. God has torn the kingdom from Saul, and that is definite. It is unrepentable. There is no give in that word. God will not change his mind about changing his mind. There is mystery here. There is mystery here. What do we do, church, in the mystery? We worship. Let's stand together. Father, once again, we have beheld your ways and stand in awe. Once again, we have beheld your glory and stand amazed. We want to never lose the wonder of it all. Dear Lord, honestly, we, we never want to fully comprehend you. Because that would mean that you are not God. So in the mystery... We worship you as God who is beyond our comprehension but who came to us clothed in flesh paid the ultimate price for us. Dear Lord, take your word and please do work in the hearts of your people. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.